This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. I'm Sally Krawcheck, CEO and co-founder of Elevest. I'm Lizanne Saunders, Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist for Charles Schwab. I'm Carla Harris, Vice Chairman, Managing Director, and Senior Client Advisor at Morgan Stanley. This is Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Now, Veronica Dagger. Welcome to the Wall Street Journal Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast, a look at powerful female leaders and the secrets to their success. On this episode, we highlight women in the workplace who are taking the financial world by storm. Sally Krawcheck, Lizanne Saunders, and Carla Harris all have managed to become key female figures in the world of finance. We'll hear how each overcame the common challenges women face in the workplace and how they made their way to the top. Wall Street legend Sally Krawcheck is the CEO and co-founder of Elevest, a digital investment platform for women. She's the chair of Elevate Network, a global professional woman's networking group, and she's also the best-selling author of Own It, The Power of Women at Work. She previously was the CEO of Merrill Lynch Wealth Management and the president of the Global Wealth and Investment Management Division of Bank of America. Today, her new focus is on closing the gender money gap. So, Sally, what inspired you to get into finance to begin with? Well, I wanted to be one of two things when I grew up. Uh, The first was a princess, and the second was a banker. And the princess didn't work out. (laughs) (laughs) I love it. So that's actually not the real story. The real story is that I was a journalism major at the University of North Carolina and was on track to write for a newspaper or a magazine. And in my senior year, decided that I should probably learn something. And so thought, maybe I'll be a business reporter. Let me go to Wall Street, learn something for a couple of years, and then become a business journalist. And that really was the plan through most of my 20s. And I ended up investment banking for several years, hated it, hated everything about it, wanted to get back into media, really couldn't find a job doing it. And how happened upon the idea of becoming an equity research analyst, which in a way is a lot like a business journalist, right? A lot of writing, a lot of digging, a lot of engaging with smart people, but also the 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 analysis and the model building that I loved as well. So, you know, I got about two degrees away from being a business journalist by working on Wall Street. So much of your career you spent, you were the only woman in the room. <laughs> and so I'm wondering, how were you able to make your voice heard? Yeah. How long do we have? You know, people say to me, did being a woman on Wall Street help you or hurt you? And my answer is yes, because I can point to times in my career when it was each of those or both of those. The way I heard, I I got myself heard was I started by being deeply entrenched in the numbers and deeply entrenched in the research and that I found that if I came in with the multiple regression that laid out and quantified the business line profitability of the companies I covered for my clients, 
they were going to listen. They were going to listen. They had to listen in order for them to be knowledgeable about the industry that they were investing in and the stocks that they were buying. And once they had to listen, the very fact of my being a female meant I was unforgettable because, oh, yeah, there was that really interesting analysis that man with the brown hair and the red tie and the white shirt did what was his name? I don't know. (laughs) Right. But if, oh, there was that interesting analysis that one woman who covers the industry did, oh, right, it's Sally. And so people couldn't forget you, you know, because of your being a woman. So, and I found over time that once I had sort of earned that right through having the numbers and the quantification, that I then earned the right to have my opinion as well, even if it wasn't backed by the numbers. So what's the takeaway for other women? Become an, an expert at what you're doing? Yeah, well, you know, unfortunately, it's it's advice that's been there since time immemorial, which is be great at your job. And that for all that we're having this fascinating national conversation today about gender in the workplace and harassment in the workplace and gender expectations in the workplace, which is a, is a depressing but healthy conversation, I have found that there is regardless, a pretty high correlation between hard work and success. And that it's not every week and it's not every year even, but that if you put in the work and are excellent at what you do, it becomes very difficult for people to ignore you. Not in every circumstance, but certainly on Wall Street, which was a meritocracy. Do you ever deal with any harassment? Uh, Yes, I did. Yes, I did. Uh, When I first started in investment banking at Solomon Brothers, which was a pretty rough and tumble place, every morning I would come in and be greeted by a Xerox copy of male genitalia on my desk. And I was a baby. People say to me, why don't you go to HR? I mean, what the heck was an HR? I didn't know what an HR was. Um, I knew that my boss's 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 boss was screaming obscenity, smoking cigars, having literally, literally was having an affair with three different women in the department that everybody knew about. So the idea that I could go to somebody and say, geez, there are these pictures of male genitalia on my desk just wasn't an option. This was 1987. I came from a middle class family. My friends were losing their jobs, losing their jobs because of the crash. And so my only option was to come in every day crumple that paper and throw it away. And then, you know, later in my career, I had powerful men make inappropriate passes at me, as so many women have. Happily, I was never in a situation in which it was my boss or my boss's boss or anyone who had control over my career. And so happily, while it was embarrassing and awkward and weird and like, seriously, dude, are you world famous financier and government official who you're listeners would know. So it was awkward and embarrassing, but happily, I wasn't in a situation where I was scared of losing my job. Thank goodness. So there's plenty of corporate initiatives to help women's careers in the financial industry, but it doesn't seem like they're working very well. Because they're not. <laughs> so what What do we do to change this? What, what's going wrong here? Oh, you know, I the CEO's I really believe get it. I'm sure there's some CEO someplace who's saying diversity is important and they're like, it's not important. I don't care about it. I think they get it. The challenge is, particularly in financial services, particularly on Wall Street, the challenge is, you're not going to believe I'm about to say it, these firms view themselves as meritocracies. Oh, well, hold on, Sally. If they're a meritocracy, then the best people are going to rise to the top. That's how meritocracies work. 
That's not the case. In fact, the research tells us that those industries that view themselves as meritocracies are the least diverse, right? Wall Street's one of them. Silicon Valley is another. Now, you might say, oh, well, you know, unfortunately, women and people of color just can't cut it. White men, you know, just have better business results. Go back to Silicon Valley. First Round Capital has research that tells us that the investments that they make in teams that have women in the leadership team have 63% better returns than those that are men only. Despite this, Despite this, last year, women got 2.5%, 3% of, of venture capital dollars. So this is a meritocracy. We're going to put our money where it's going to work best, and yet the returns are po- meh, okay in Silicon Valley. The stock market returns on Wall Street have been, you know, through a cycle really poor, and they are misallocating their resources. I think what's happening, too, as you look at companies, is that middle management is where diversity is going to die because it's a meritocracy. Let me run the business the way I'm going to and you judge me on the results. And so I'm picky. I, I'm not hiring very often as a middle manager. And so therefore, I pick people who look a lot like me, right? And I'm not promoting people of difference. I may be vaguely aware of the research that says diversity leads to better business results, but it's just so much more comfortable to pick people like me. And then when they get judged, well, who can say that theoretically their results would have been better if they'd had a diverse leadership, a diverse team? Nobody. And so this, you know, view of meritocracy is leading people to go into their comfort zone and therefore have non-diverse industries. And so I haven't checked the latest numbers, but I can tell you a couple of years ago, Wall Street was less diverse than it had been a decade before. You would have thought coming out of the financial crisis, it would have become more diverse. It was less diverse. Wow. So how do we change that? What do we do differently? I think we have to give direction. And I'm trying to avoid the word quota here, but to give goals and to pay people around those goals and say, you know, your team needs to look like X or Y. It can't be a bunch of folks who look just like you. And you need to deliver this kind of revenue and you need to have, you know, this many new projects or whatever those things are and make it something that we compensate people for. Because just talking about it at the town hall is a nice to do and then ignoring it in the year end reviews, we have seen how far that can take us and we've stalled out. What advice do you have for women who want to learn more about money and investing, but don't know where to start. There's so many articles, some of them in the Wall Street Journal, about investing mistakes people make. And they're all about falling in love with the winners and overtrading and panicking in down markets. And those articles all need to be retitled Investing Mistakes Men Make, because the mistake women make is they don't invest as much. And the other mistake they make, which is captured a bit in your question, is they believe what society has told us, which is in addition that we're too risk averse to invest and we need, you know, too much time, but da, 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 we really buy into what we're told that we need more financial education to invest. And so we need to learn more. I've got to buy the book. It's true. We do need more financial education. But guess who else does? The guys. And they invest anyway. And so because we women love to get our A's, everybody who's listening knows either if you're a woman, you loved your A's at work, at school. If you have a daughter, she freaks out when she gets a B plus, right? So we buy the books and we say we're going to read them and we say we're going to get financially educated. And then do you know what's more interesting than that? Everything. Everything. Like doing the long laundry is more interesting than reading the book on financial education. And so we put it off. And that's part of what keeps us from earning more money. Put another way, when I was running Smith Barney, our biggest product was the managed account. 84% of our clients did not know what it was. Neither gender, even though we sent them big prospectuses, okay, or prospecti or whatever, whatever the plural of prospectuses. 
the men and the women would not ask. The men, we love to joke because men don't ask for directions. The women, because women don't like to bother. The men would buy it and the women wouldn't. Who's better off, right? Who's who's sort of dumb? Well, the men were better off because at least they were investing. And so what I would say is, first of all, at Elevest, we've got plenty of resources there for what you should know before you begin to invest, the steps you should take before you begin to invest. And, and other sites have it as well. Certainly do some of that. You don't have to get a PhD in investing, but just do it. And then invest a bit out of every paycheck. Because the other mistake we tend to make, the cognitive mistake we make, is we tend to think of investing as one and done. What if I put the money in and the market crashes? Okay. But what if you put a bit of every paycheck in? Then if the market crashes, you're buying, you buy high and you buy low, you buy low, you buy low, and that can even it out for you. What's the best investment you ever made? My home. <laughs> because so it's when I was at Citigroup. First of all, I know I'm supposed to answer like my kids' education or something like that. So pretend like I did that. <laughs> or the best investment sure. was investing in my marrying my husband. All that stuff. But but the best probably financial plus emotional investment I ever made was my home. At City, we had a handshake agreement that we would not sell our stock as a senior leadership team. So I was running Smith Barney there. And I got the permission to sell my stock in order to buy my home. And Citigroup stock, I think it peaked like at 52. It went below one. Now, there are many people who are like, oh, yes, but it's back in the 60s or the 70s now. Uh, 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 uh. I did a 10 for one reverse split. It's it's six or seven. <laughs> and so happily, I took that money, put it in a home that has given us so much joy over the past decade plus and has actually appreciated in value. So my home. Do you think a woman will ever be the wealthiest person in the world? Depends on the time frame. Sure. Why not? Hey, did you see, I think it was in the Wall Street Journal, did you see the research that said that today in this country, more people believe that we will see time travel in our lifetimes than believe we will have an equal number of female and male CEOs in the Fortune 500? (laughs) And you know, it's hard to argue, right? Right. Coming up, more success stories from the most powerful women in finance. This is the Wall Street Journal's Secrets of Wealthy Women podcast. This spot is brought to you by Eaton Vance, the symbol of advanced investing. What's inside your ETF? With Eaton Vance High Yield ETF, you know. Inside, you'll find smart bond selection from a specialized team with deep fixed income expertise. Get to know what's inside EVHY, the symbol of high yield done right, at eatonvance.com slash symbols. Before investing, prospective investors should carefully consider the investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. The current prospectus contains this and other information and is available at eatonvance.com. Read the prospectus carefully before investing. Not FDIC insured. Offer no bank guarantee. May lose value. Not insured by any federal government agency. Not a deposit. Investments involve risk. Principal loss is possible. Distributed by Foresight Fund Services, LLC. Spend time with Alexa, then make what's news part of your flash briefing on the Amazon Echo, the Wall Street Journal. Listen ambitiously. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from the Wall Street Journal. Carla Harris is Vice Chairman, Managing Director, and Senior Client Advisor at Morgan Stanley. In August 2013, Carla was appointed by President Obama to chair the National Women's Business Council. She's a Harvard grad, author of several books, including Expect to Win and a Gospel Singer. When you were in your 20s or 30s, did you expect to be 
where you are today financially and professionally. I certainly expected to succeed both financially and professionally because I had by that point made the decision to become an investment banker and I always had expectations of being successful no matter what I did. Didn't realize that I would have done all the things that I've done throughout my career and ultimately to become a vice chairman because frankly vice chairman titles didn't exist on Wall Street at that time. So it wasn't even something to aspire to. The thing to aspire to was being a managing director at a major Wall Street firm. Interesting. Where did you get that expectation of yourself? I would have to give that credit to my parents. They always made me feel that I was supposed to do well. And the story that I like to tell Veronica is I remember coming home one day saying to my dad, you owe me money, you owe me money. Because, And he said, well, why do I owe you money? I said, because I got all A's. And so-and-so's mama gave them a dollar. So-and-so's dad gave them 50 cents. And he said, what? I'm not giving you any money. You're supposed to do well. See what happens if you don't come home with all those A's. <laughs> and so I sort of went, okay, that didn't go very well. And, and that's when I thought, well, okay, I'm supposed to do well. And uh, so that's where the expectation of doing as well as you possibly could, finding out what the epitome of that thing was. And in academia, it was having the A. And then once you once I started working, it was getting promoted to those things that were in front of you. Did you have a 10-year plan or anything like that? I would say that I did not have a 10-year plan. I like to joke and say I had a two-year plan and a five-year plan, but certainly did not have a 10-year plan. And what I say to my millennial friends is, in particular, they shouldn't be thinking about a 10-year plan or a 20- or 30-year plan. They should be thinking about modules of five. Because I do think that things are evolving so quickly these days that companies are being created, careers are being created that don't even exist today. We can't even articulate what they are. If you think about it, 13 years ago, you couldn't say, I wanted to be a CEO of Facebook or I want to be chief people person at Instagram or I want to be CMO of Pinterest. Those companies didn't even exist so I think the the game, if you will, is to think about modules of five and how you can acquire what I like to call strategic skills, those management skills, really project management skills, analytical skills, you know, selling skills, presentation skills, because those skills are truly strategic because they can apply across all industries. You talk a lot about women needing to own their power. And mm-hmm. so I want to know, how might people try to take away that power? Oh, Sure. When you are in dynamic, competitive environments, people certainly try to make you feel that perhaps you shouldn't be there or make you second-guess the decisions that you make, second-guess the decision you made to even be in that environment, especially when it's intense and dynamic because there there's a bit of a competition, if you will, or at least sometimes they try to make you feel that it's a competition. But the game, if you will, to think about in your own mind is Think about why you went there, what skills you wanted to get, what kind of experiences you wanted to have, what kind of networks you want to build, and be steadfastly focused on getting those things and not get distracted by, as as the quote said, the games that people play. But if you allow people to get into your head, then they sort of got you. You have given away your power if they make you start to question whether or not you should be there or whether or not you're capable of doing the job. So how do you keep yourself confident? Are you saying a mantra to yourself? There are a few ways that you can do it. One, you can you can say the mantra. Uh, the other thing that you can do is to remind yourself of that agenda. I'm a big fan, and it's the only thing that I think I repeat in both of my books, Expect to Win and Strategize to Win, is have an agenda. And an agenda, in my opinion, has two pieces. One is the seat, 
and the seat really is the job. And the questions around the seat, what skills do I want to get, what experiences, what kind of networks, that's the reason that you should take a seat. The next part of the agenda is the house, right? And that's where you're doing it. So why do I want to go to that company? What kind of career trajectory do they offer me? What kind of career platform will I have there? Are there people there that already seem like they could be committed to my success? Or I think that I could get interested in being committed to my success. Do I have a respected voice? Those are all the reasons that you go to a house. So once you've made that decision and you have that agenda, when things don't go well, you won't make an emotional decision about your career. You can go back to that agenda and say, have I fully prosecuted the seat? Is that what's going on here? Why I'm not really loving life right now or this is not going well? And if the answer is you haven't fully prosecuted the seat, then you should not necessarily leave that seat. And then you go and say, well, do I still like the house? Are they, their values aligned with mine? Do I feel like I have a voice? Am I supported? Do I have a sponsor or can I get a sponsor here? And if the answer is yes, then you're in the right seat, in the right house. Now it's easy to diagnose the problem. The problem then means there's probably a person that is confounding your success. And studies show that most women in particular leave organizations because of one person. And that's when it's time, Veronica, to remind yourself that there isn't a person born that you can't get around. And when you're feeling stuck, that means you haven't invested enough in the people in your environment because it's the relationships that really create the mobility in an organization. What's the biggest career obstacle you overcame? I will tell you, it's not knowing some of the, the pearls, as I like to call them, that I'm talking to you about right now. I really did buy, coming out of Harvard Business School, the whole concept of a meritocracy. If you're smart and you work hard, you'll get to the top. But there are so many other things that really inform your success equation. So I'd say that was the biggest obstacle is not understanding that it wasn't just about working hard and, and it wasn't just about being smart. Why do you think so many women feel that way? You have to admit the meritocracy is sold pretty hard across all industries. I can't think of one company that I talked to coming out of business school that didn't say, you work hard, you're smart, you can get to the top here, just deliver. Everybody sells it, even to this day. But I would think, and I'm generalizing here, but some women have a tendency more to believe that than others. Do you no, have any sense of I, why? I actually think everybody buys it coming out of graduate school or coming out of college. Um, I do think, though, that it may be it may take a little longer. And as you know, Veronica, I don't often give gender-specific advice, but I may say that it may take a little bit longer for women to get it because they may be a little slower to form those relationships that really matter, especially in a male-dominated environment where informally a senior guy may talk to a junior guy or may invite that person out to golf or may invite that person out to drinks. And once you get exposed to that and those kinds of conversations, then you start to realize how important those conversations are. So if you're slower to get invited to those kinds of things where you can have that aha moment, it's going to take you a little longer to figure out that those relationships do matter. How would you describe the current gender pay gap? Well, I do think we're getting a little bit closer, especially given that some companies have signed on to actually publish the pay differentials or to publish what they're paying people across the board. And I do think, frankly, that the millennials, and this is one of the many reasons that I'm excited about that generation, I do think that they're going to 
accelerate that kind of transparency. Because one of the things I think that they demand in their workplace is transparency. They want transparency around pay. They want transparency around career trajectory and career movement. They want transparency around feedback. So I do think that that transparency demand will probably move more companies into the space where they want to publish that or at least, you know, give the general brackets, if you will. How did you personally overcome gender pay gap issues? Well, I'll tell you, you never really know how big the gap is, right? Because in most companies, one person should not disclose to the other what they're making. So there's really no way, unless you're looking at somebody's W-2, to really be able to tell. But I will say, that I learned probably midway through that it was important that you make the ask. You know, and there are ways that you can ask around pay. You can say things like, you know, am I at the top of my class? Or where am I in in the class of people that came in with me? Or, you know, I've done my homework and the market pays this for CMO. And so it feels like I'm at the low end or the middle end or how are you guys thinking about that or what would it take for me to get at the top end because it's my desire to be at the top of my field. And that also means uh, with respect to pay. So it's getting over any fear that you might have to have those conversations about compensation. And I'll tell you, Veronica, it was a colleague of mine who said to me one time, oh, well, I just tell them what I want to get paid. And I thought, whoa, what, what language do you use to say that? But it it made me think, and it got me to the point where I got the courage to go and have that conversation about the fact that compensation was important to me. And sometimes it's just as simple as having that conversation and at least provoking a bigger conversation around that that will hold you in good stead. What do you think are some of the top secrets of wealthy, successful, professional Mm -hmm. women? Mm -hmm. I think that they take risks early on. So someone like in my position might have gone ahead and like I have a friend, for example, we are contemporaries. She started investing in real estate back then, you know, when I was still trying to figure it out and has done quite well around that. So I do think that super wealthy folks, uh, number one, they get shown deals because they're in those circles where those deals are happening. That's number one. Number two, they take the risk and, and invest a little bit earlier. Number three, I don't think that they're wedded necessarily to actually keeping it. They're willing to let it go, take the profit, reinvest, and go on to the next thing. And I think that you need to be willing to do that as well and not say, okay, well, I've made this amount. Let me, let me ride it some more before actually it goes across the crest. The future of everything from the Wall Street Journal. Technology and superstorms. Digital money. What's next for retail? and fighting superbugs. Join me, Jennifer Strong, as I examine how science and technology are influencing our lives today, tomorrow, and beyond. The Future of Everything from The Wall Street Journal, Season 2. You're listening to Secrets of Wealthy Women from The Wall Street Journal. Lizanne Saunders is Senior Vice President and Chief Investment Strategist at Charles Schwab. She's a keynote speaker at many investment conferences and is a regular guest on CNBC programs as well as on Fox Business News. As chief investment strategist, she has a range of responsibilities, including market analysis and investor education. She talks about markets, mentoring, and how women have an advantage in a mostly male-dominated field. So, Lizanne, you admitted to being bored reading the Wall Street Journal when I'm you sorry. were in college. I'm sorry. That's all right. <laughs> and, you know, now you're this well-known markets and economics expert. So I'm just wondering, and hopefully reading our paper. Yes, of course, every day. Good. 
So what changed for you? Well, I think some of it was just maturity and probably who and how we all are at 18 and 19 years old for starting in college and priorities maybe were a little bit uh, different, although there was a certainly a priority to get the work done. There was also a priority to get the play done. And I had not had any background in sort of the world of economics and finance, certainly at a high school level. Initially found it just a little bit boring to, to focus on newspapers. And that's not the case anymore. <laughs> How did you find that passion? I think it was my passion, which I, I do have for what I do, really found me more than I found it. And it was a, a function of once I got out of undergraduate school, the I think my first job, and I, for all intents and purposes, I've had two jobs in 31 years, which I think in the, in the world of, of finance and Wall Street is somewhat rare. And my first job at a combined company called Zweig Avatar, through that and through the people there and what I learned there, I fell in love with the business. And you know, the, the, one of the heads of the firm at the time was the late, great Marty Zweig. And he really was just an icon and a pioneer and uh, taught me a tremendous amount about how the way markets work, and in particular, the psychology of the market and psychology of investors and the behavioral side. And it just became uh, a fascination. But it was not something that I thought I would end up doing. In fact, if you had said to me in, in college, if you'd done you know, a 35-year flash forward and showed me doing what I do, I think I would probably have been more shocked than anybody else. You know, so much of the financial industry is trying to target women specifically, yes. and we're hearing women aren't investing as much as they should be. What do you think the financial industry needs to do differently to perhaps get women more interested or excited? First of all, the, the demographics are such that this has to be a focus. It has to be a focus of, of the industry, of women in the industry, about other women, but also I think younger people coming into the working world because I believe it was last year we finally crossed the chasm, if you want to call it that, whereby more wealth in this country right now is controlled by women than men. And that's a function of us generally living longer and generally living healthier, but also more women are graduating from both college and and graduate programs. So I think the shift is in. And women are a bit different in terms of how they approach investing. And it's one of the reasons why women-owned and women-operated investment advisory firms are having such great success because it's not universal, but many studies have shown that women investors like the idea of working with other women and, and firms that have been started by or run by women. And I also just I just think it's a great industry for young women. I'm biased, of course, but I'm the first to offer up my view that I think this industry broadly and most components of it, I think, is a great industry for women. I think being a woman in this field is an advantage, not a disadvantage. How so? Again, it, a lot of this is generalizing, but I think when you are in an industry that is still arguably dominated by the middle-aged white guy, <laughs> just being a woman automatically sets you apart. I think that that's just a, a benefit right from the get-go. I think women as investors and women who take care of other women investors. We, One of the reasons why studies have shown that women tend to be more successful investors, women investment clubs outperform male-only investment clubs, performance of firms at the advisory level that are female-owned tend to have better performance. And again, generalization, but maybe it's that intuition, that gut instinct that I, I know I personally rely on, less of the gambling, I think, mentality sometimes of men, a more of a methodical, thoughtful approach to investing to how markets work. I certainly personally know that at some of the most successful market calls, and I don't love using that term, but but 
views I've had, definitive views I've had on the market. I, I don't know. I think I think it had as much to do with my my gut instinct and intuition as uh, as anything else. And I just think it's it's a great I think it's a great field for for women. And one of the things I love about it is the complete lack of monotony. It is changing every single day, which I think is exciting. What about being the only woman in the room and having to deal with things like guys speaking over you or you know extreme cases guys harassing you? Have you dealt with I, that? You know what? Fortunately, there's not a lot of wood in here. I'd knock it otherwise. But I have not, in terms of the harassment piece of it, I have not faced that much in my life. It may have just been luck or luck in the sense that I have the two firms for whom I worked. It just, there was a lot of females in senior positions. And I I believed in the character of organizations that I was associated with, which in turn is a function of the the character of the leaders of those organizations. And it's not been something I've faced other than more in the periphery, out there traveling, speaking, uh, but nothing terribly egregious, fortunately. So I think that I have been lucky to not have that. Now, the, the sort of chauvinism to your first question about talking over you, maybe there is, you know, before we started this, we, we talked about Brooklyn. And, you know, I was born in Brooklyn. My parents were born and raised in Brooklyn. I am not a shrinking violent. No one has ever told me I'm soft-spoken. <laughs> so I think I can also give an air sometimes of uh, don't mess with me. I don't consider myself a harsh person, but I, maybe that air is such that there's a maybe a second thought. <laughs> you've said you've had some male mentors that played big roles yes. in your life. We're hearing a lot in terms of the fallout from the Weinstein thing and some of these other issues that are going on in the media right now that certain men may be reluctant to mentor women because they're going to be afraid of being yeah. accused of something. What do you think of that? And what do you say to the women who still want those mentorships? Well, I think it's a, sh- a shame if things like what happened with, with Harvey Weinstein color industries broadly and gender relationships broadly. I mean, I mean, it's that that was that continues to be an unbelievably horrific story. I actually met both the Weinstein brothers many, many years ago. I have a very dear friend who used to work for uh, for Miramax. You know, it was not long enough a meeting. I'm not, I, that was not a, a, a prelude to ooh, she's going to tell, tell us her own juicy story about Harvey Weinstein. You know, when I think about the, the mentors that I have had, and they weren't formal mentors in any kind of specific program, but you know, working for Marty Zweig and his partner Ned Babbitt, who were phenomenal mentors. When I started in the world of television, it was in the era of Wall Street Week with Louis Rukeyser, who was an unbelievable icon and mentor. And now having the great pleasure in the last 18 years of working not just for the firm Charles Schwab, but for the man Chuck Schwab. There's not a more iconic figure, I think, in the world of Wall Street. And I think nobody has done a better job democratizing investing for the public. So I just, again, I was very fortunate that the mentors that I had, they just happened to be male. And I hope there is an openness. I think it's wonderful. I'm a mentor at, at Schwab. I've mentored quite a few people. The two most recent were actually uh, male, so kind of in the opposite direction. But I, I hope we don't see stories like this color the power of mentorship, regardless of, uh, of gender. Sounds like some of your mentorships were pretty informal. How do you position yourself to be that mentee in such an informal environment? What well, in the case of, of my first firm's Y Gavatar, it was a very small 
small firm. So I think the the structure of the organization, the openness of how we collaborated was part of the culture of the firm. And I think the size afforded us that uh, opportunity. So I think, uh, you know, if, if Marty were, were still with us, I'm, I'm not sure that he would use that term to describe what he represented to me or maybe other people. But when I think back and I think about what the definition is of mentorship, and I think about what I learned from him during that very early set of years in my career, that's the label I would apply to it. But I think it's just having somebody that is an influencer within an organization that you have proximity to and can learn from. Maybe there are other definitions for that word, but mentor is the one that I think of most easily. How come there's not more of you, more senior women in financial services? I think you do see it more in the corporate world than you do in on traditional Wall Street. And I, I'm not sure why. I think there is this perception, but I would I would throw the label miss in front of it. I think there's a misperception because we already touched on it. I hear it all the time from young people, young women in college, young women in graduate school, or parents of young women who are looking for guidance and trying to decide whether it's worth the effort to go into financial services to work on Wall Street, given the perception that it is kind of a boys network and that you're going to bump your head consistently into the glass ceiling. I do think it is a misperception because I think the opportunities are great. If mine or somebody else's goal was to ultimately be the CEO of a major investment banking wirehouse firm, I think I might have a different perspective because I think those barriers do still exist. But there are so many other types of roles inside this thing we consider Wall Street that I think are are fantastic opportunities for women. Time now for your secrets. I'm Sally Krawcheck, and my money secret is I love to buy and sell my clothes on The Real Real. I'm Carla Harris, and my money secret is pay yourself first and invest it. I'm Lizanne Saunders, and my money secret is to understand that being a contrarian at extremes is extremely valuable. Be sure to check back for future episodes featuring women leaders and their success stories. Subscribe and review us on Apple Podcasts or your favorite audio provider. I'm Veronica Dagger. Thanks for listening. What's your secret? Let us know. Write podcasts at DowJones.com or on Twitter. Use hashtag Secrets of Wealthy Women.